Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. Each episode, I speak with industry experts from the attractions world. In today's episode, I speak with Kingston Miles, Head of Commercial Development at English Heritage. Kingston shares his insight into where the biggest opportunities lie for diversifying income streams and his top three tips on how attractions of any size can utilise these strategies. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify and all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. Kingston, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I'm very excited to have you here. More than welcome. Hopefully you'll feel as excited after I've asked you the icebreaker questions. Who knows? But let's go. Um, Right, this is quite topical for today. So I want to know, what are you most likely to buy when you exit through the gift shop? Oh, me personally, probably a bottle of gin or alcohol. That's probably my go-to when I leave through the gift shop. Good choice. A gin man. A man of my dreams. Not going (laughs) to lie. (laughs) Okay, all right. uh, Well, this is another one that leads on from that, actually. Do you have... Or have you ever had a collection of anything? Oh, yes. Yeah. So when I was growing up, I had a collection of the James Bond videos and used to put them all together on the shelf and they used to paint a picture and one was missing. Uh, my nan used to buy them for me when I was a kid. And like only one of them was missing right up until like videos kind of got killed by DVD and DVDs got killed by Netflix. So, yeah, I guess that was probably the... The one thing I can remember having like a proper collection of. Did you ever get the missing one? No, it was like number oh. th- film number 13, I think, from memory. Not that it's bugged me for all these years. <laughs> Look, someone listening to this is going to send you that now. They're going to hunt it down on eBay and be like, Look what I found you. You're yeah, missing. and I'll be in the loft digging out the videos <laughs> and then trying to find a video player. <laughs> Have you still got them? I think they're still at my parents' house in the loft. Yeah, we don't throw stuff away easily. So no, we're we're hoarders as well. That we're we're loft hoarders. It's really sad though, isn't it? Because my mum did this when I was younger with Disney videos. So every new Disney film that came out on video, she bought. And I think I think she was thinking, oh, this is lovely. You know, one day I'll have grandchildren as well, and they can watch them. Yeah, and then streaming came along, and now we've kind of just got everything at the click of a button. Disney Plus, mum, it's taken over. Right, good. I like this. Um, okay, last icebreaker question. What's the best attraction event that you've ever experienced? Oh, I went to the Alley Pally fireworks last year, which is you know the big fireworks show um, for London. And I'm not a Londoner. So, you know, you've got to imagine, first of all, I was in South London and I told friends I'll pop up and see them. There's no popping from like South London to Alley Pally, as I found out the hard way. But I've just never seen... Uh, like a pop-up one-night fireworks show on the scale of that with like the infrastructure and all the different bits um, that kind of make it what it was. I really underestimated it. I thought, oh, we'll turn up. There'll be like classic few burger vans and like a bit of music and a bar. No, it's this just incredible like pop-up experience that takes over Ali Pali. So that was probably the 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 one that surprised me most because I went thinking it would be like every other sort of local firework display. Um, and it wasn't it was huge everybody rates this I've never been to this I, I, I can remember years ago ice skating at Ali Pali and we used to have to get three buses to get to Ali Pali to actually do that but everybody speaks so highly of this fireworks attraction uh, fireworks night never been yeah it's phenomenal it's huge and there's like literally tens of thousands of people go um to to see it so um it's definitely worthwhile going to I think also it's one of those once you've been to it you want to go and find something else because the magic will 
probably fade potentially relatively quickly. And there's lots of other incredible displays around London, but it's definitely a worthwhile experience. Excellent. Good choice. I wasn't expecting that. Um, okay, right. Your unpopular opinion. What have you prepared for us? Oh, I think my my really unpopular opinion is that actually we over-index our focus, um, especially in the culture and heritage sector, on gift shops, on catering and on membership. And actually the future is way beyond beyond that. So um, that's probably my unpopular opinion is we over-index on shops and cafes and forget that there are dozens of other ways that you can generate income. Oh, I like this. And very topical for the things that we're going to talk about today as well. It's an excellent lead into the conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, we are going to talk about diversifying income streams today. Uh, Your role, when we spoke um, pre-interview, we had a brilliant chat and I just found your role so interesting and so diverse. Can you just share a little bit of what you do with our audience and kind of what your tasks with achieving? Yeah, sure. So uh, my official title is Head of Commercial Development, which is best summarised as being responsible for this kind of incubator of business growth and efficiency. So I'm responsible for four business areas within English Heritage, our brand licensing programme, our portfolio of holiday cottages, and our venue hire business. And those are all income generating parts of this sort of incubator. And then uh, also responsible for managing a suite of national contracts. So the provision of services to all of our site operations teams. And that's really about looking at efficiency opportunities, the chance to rationalize contracts um, and reduce perhaps the supplier debt that we have in terms of the number of suppliers we're working with. So we can we can get uh, better value for the charity. Um, But all of those business areas are kind of unique in that they've got such scope to grow. So um, and at a point, they will eventually have their own, hopefully their own allocated um, head of department when they sort of graduate my care and then something else will fall into, I'm sure, my sort of pool. It feels quite entrepreneurial, your role. Is it quite a unique role for English heritage or is it is this something that you've kind of defined for yourself within the organisation? Yeah, so I'm the first head of commercial development. Um, so and the role was created uh, back in 2020 with uh, an initial focus on looking at brand licensing and contracts and compliance. And then there was sort of a, an opportunity to pull the holiday cottage piece in as well. And then various sort of personnel and structure changes meant that I um, I, I inherited the, the venue hire business, which is exciting because it's kind of the closest thing to sort of my um previous job roles, um, sort of pre-culture and heritage. But yeah, it's definitely unique in a sense of um, various business areas rather than sort of one specific focus, that traditional focus of having either like a head of retail or a head of catering, which we do have, or head of food and beverage. Um, But within the cultural sector, sort of heads of business development, heads of business innovation, change transformation. I mean, they all sound very buzzwordy, but they are definitely, uh, there are definitely more and more roles emerging as institutions say, well, actually, how do we diversify our income streams, strike up more partnerships? Like we kind of need somebody who is almost like a paid entrepreneur. And and I'm, I'm so privileged in that that kind of really is my job. I'm paid to be entrepreneurial without the risk of having to invest all my own cash and capital into an idea. <laughs> it's um, the perfect role. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Especially, um, especially because when it's successful and when we do great things, they contribute towards this sort of wider charitable purpose. So you get this real benefit of creating a business, but that business has this incredible sort of halo effect of doing good 
um, because we all work for a charity. Yeah, so it's the warmer, fuzzy feeling as well. You um, you mentioned just briefly there that you that your roles previously outside of the sector. Can, what were those roles, and and how have they helped you with this role? That that's quite an interesting thing to to understand. So um, I used to work in bars uh, and nightclubs, uh, hospitality and events. So sort of a real um, events and hospitality sort of butterfly as that industry kind of is. You know, you kind of chase progression, opportunities, new openings. Um, there's always something sort of shiny and new moving in the hospitality space and, and managers move around a lot. But I think the transferable skills from that, you know, it's it's everything from just general business operations and financial acumen, which especially if you're in an independent operator, you know, you're really close to both the P&L, but also the balance sheet and cash flow. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, also kind of innovation and that that entrepreneurial spirit, that sort of need to be able to grow uh, a business, whether that's more people through a door, a higher transaction value, or a more efficient control of your suppliers and contractors, kind of it's all transferable into the sector. And there's this kind of a really interesting change in the sector at the moment in that more and more people are transitioning into the sector rather than kind of perhaps growing through the sector. It's becoming more attractive as a sector to work in, which is exciting um, because it used to really be a case of sort of join and you had to work your way up, whereas actually the sector is recognising those transferable skills add value, especially in this current climate. Yeah, I like that take on it, actually, because we have a lot of guests that come on that work within the attraction sector that kind of, that would start at quite a low level entry point and then work their way up. So this is you're probably the first guest that's come in from a completely different perspective. You know, they, they, it hasn't been your, your be all or end all. You haven't like had this huge desire to work in it from the minute that you came out of school. You've transitioned from something that's completely different, but really transferable. So I'm excited to hear where today takes us. All right. Well, let's let's start. What I'd like to understand is how attractions start that process of diversifying its income streams. You talked a little bit at the beginning about, you know, we're, we're quite tied to admission fees and membership and retail. How do they start to look beyond that? Yeah, I think um, part of it is, underst- you know, taking stock of what you have. You know, if you've got big open green spaces, then great, you could focus on large third party events working with uh, production companies and and clients and promoters you know if you've got this really interesting design-led collection or if you've got you know a really interesting story to tell then perhaps it's more around sort of brand licensing and leveraging the intellectual property so I guess step one is asking you know what what do I have beyond my by beyond my shop beyond my cafe beyond admissions what what product could I create and what product is going to be the easiest to create um, is probably the best place to start, because I speak to a lot of colleagues within the sector or a lot of sort of commercial managers within heritage and culture institutions that are like, right, well, we want to do everything that your job does. And I'm like, well, you don't have a portfolio of properties that could be you know, transformed into high quality lets or accommodation. You're never going to have a holiday business. So don't don't try and squeeze glamping into this really small corner of your estate focus on something else um so yeah I guess it's taking stock is is key that's a really good advice isn't it and uh, I guess it's it's look at what you already have and making the most of it which is a message that is is quite key at the moment where we're seeing budgets being cut marketing departments all over you know you don't have to necessarily start from scratch it's just about making the most of what you already have and developing that into something that 
you've already got a, quite a captive audience for. Yes, definitely, 100%. Great. Okay, so um, what are the areas that look quite exciting at the moment if we're an attraction? Like, where can you see some of the biggest opportunities? Yeah, I mean, so filming location hire. You know, we've seen this huge boom in uh, domestic filming location hire, domestic film shoots, domestic productions, regional uh, screen tourism offices are are popping up. There are some incredible partners within the film sector, um, Film London, Creative England, uh, Screen Yorkshire, sort of all these bodies that really drive trying to connect people with great spaces to production companies that want to film domestically. And I think as we see the kind of challenges of the cost of global travel and the strength of the pound in the sort of wider economic world, although I'm not an economist, um, sort of change, there's a real opportunity to capitalise on productions that say, actually, we can unit base, we can, you know, produce here, we can shoot here, we can shoot on location. You know, we've got this tiny little island the UK sort of and and I predominantly focus obviously on England because of my role but we've got this tiny little island but there's so much in it so much to see so much diversity so I definitely think there's an opportunity to unlock um more spaces for for filming a location hire for sure yeah that's a great one and and that's quite I mean I guess that's relevant if you have if you're a stately home, for example, it's it's a perfect opportunity. But it kind of it kind of doesn't matter what your attraction is, right? Because we've seen we've seen TV shows be filmed at places like Benbow. I, I call it Benbow Brothers, but Dreamland in Margate. We've just seen a film uh, that that's that's been released that um, uh, very recently that's been shot as part of that. And I guess so. There's there's opportunities regardless of what the size of your attraction is and what it actually is as well. Completely. And I think it's about, um, you know, for each attraction, they'll have unique challenges. If you're a high footfall, you know, visitor attraction, sort of a uh, a theme park, um, for example, then, yeah, you're going to have the the conflicting challenge of foregoing admissions revenue to potentially reduce your operating capacity to shoot a film. If you're a, um, you know, the custodian of a collection of you know, national significance or an indemnified collection of art, then you're going to have all of the unique challenges of working in a space with all of the environmental controls required to protect um, pieces of art, artwork and and historic collections. And if you're an independent stately home, you're potentially going to have the challenges of sort of the knowledge base required to execute a filming location hire sort of safely, efficiently, so I think each, you know, each part of the attraction sector as sort of a whole, when you sort of that really broad um, sort of spectrum of attractions, each will have their own unique challenges. There's a real benefit in networking and learning and working with those within sort of business specific areas that already do it and do it well. So, yeah, hopefully that helps. Definitely helps. We'll talk a little bit about sector collaboration later as well. So I've got a few questions around that. What, what does English Heritage do? Can you share some of the examples of the diversity that, that you've been able to develop within within the organisation? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, staying on the subject of filming location hire, um, you know, as an example of an income stream that isn't purely based on what people might perceive, which is, you know, we've got historic properties, so they must just do period dramas. Um, Actually, we make our properties available for blockbuster films. Um, Obviously, I can't disclose what those are, but um, there are some that are in uh, post-production, which I'm really excited to see how they bring our properties to life in 
um, these really incredibly created and thought through worlds and spaces. But it doesn't just have to be big major film shoots. You know, we work with fashion houses, brands um, and editorial magazines to provide spaces for photo shoots. Um, And then, of course, within that same genre, we work with individuals, couples who might be um, might have like a real affinity to a property that want to shoot an engagement shoot or a wedding shoot or a, a celebration of of life shoot. So there's there's a real broad spectrum in that you don't have to suddenly close everything and have these massive film crews turn up with all these like incredibly like these ginormous, almost intimidating pieces of equipment. It could just be a really lovely local couple that met at a property that are getting married down the road. And on the day of their wedding, what they'd really like to do is jump in their wedding car, pop up, take some photos for a couple of hours and leave again. So it's that real spectrum of like two people and their camera person to two to 500 person strong film crew. Oh, I love that as well, because that it, it means that regardless, again, of size of, of attraction, there's still something that you can offer in some way. And I think that's really important to point out is this: these strategies, they aren't just for you know, English Heritage is, is a very large attraction organisation, but it's not just for those. There's there's plenty that, that the smaller attractions can take from this as well. What other things does English Heritage do? Because I know that you've got partnerships. I know you mentioned holiday lets. Yeah, so uh, we've got an incredible portfolio of holiday lets. So we're really unique in that all of our holiday lets are situated um, within sort of the boundary of our properties. And then when the properties close in the evening to guests, those um, that are staying overnight, so sort of day visitors leave, and our overnight guests can sort of explore the exterior spaces, um, gardens, um, and landscapes uh, overnight. So they're they're really popular. We we're really lucky to welcome sort of just over one thousand three hundred holidays a year um, across our portfolio, which is exciting. And that's an expanding portfolio. So um, we're imminently about to open a new uh, holiday let uh, the head gardener's house at Audley End in Essex. And that's been through a renovation process. So that was sort of bringing a property out, out you know, back into use. Um, and we opened a property at Rest Park, um, which is not too far um, from all the end uh, in 2021. But it's not just sort of holiday lets and, and filming. You know, we've got the brand and licensing program. So that's really about rather than sort of doing something at our site, if you kind of you know, uh, generalize the holiday business and the venue hire and filming business as sort of something that's happening at site. There's an activity at one of our properties. Our brand and intellectual property licensing business is all about unlocking the assets that we have in the collection to tell the story of England. We're really uniquely placed as English Heritage. Our our CEO, uh, Kate Maver, referred to us once as the sort of the Museum of England, which is a really nice way of looking at the stories that we can tell. So our brand licensing program will do the things that one would expect. You know, we'll use an incredible archive of wallpapers captured from properties over the years in sort of design-led work. But we also try to work with a range of like licensing partners or licensees that adopt some of our core values. You know, are they uh, an established, you know, English business manufacturing in England with some really incredible, you know, conservation and stewardship credentials? Are they celebrating sort of traditional ways of working? Because uh, we're not only this sort of steward of nearly 400 historic monuments and the blue plaque scheme in London, but we're really here trying to preserve the sort of art, the craft, sort of the the true vibe of Englishness. So we get this, this real opportunity to play from sort of design-led work right through to sort of 
culture, craft and Englishness as a brand itself? Oh, my goodness. I have so many questions on these, uh, but also a statement. I live I live like five minutes from Audley End. So and I had no <laughs> idea that you were opening the, the gardener's cottage as a, as a as a holiday let. I actually had no idea that English Heritage had a holiday let side to its organisation. So this was all quite new to me when we first spoke. What I really love about it is it really drives into the message that we're hearing more and more frequently now as we as we come through into 2023, that people are willing to pay more for something that is a really unique experience. And when you mentioned there about the holiday lets and people can then walk around the gardens at night and get a completely different, I just thought, oh my goodness, I had no idea that you could actually do that, of course. So there's like an added reason to go and stay Book somewhere that's beautiful. Obviously, it's going to be beautiful. It's an English heritage property. But you have this unique opportunity to explore the place that you're in when nobody else is there at a time that you would never, ever be able to be in it. And I just think that's amazing. Yeah, they're phenomenal. And we've been really lucky. Lucky we've worked really hard, tirelessly to drive up the quality of our office. So we started a refurbishment program of our holiday estate um, towards the end of 2020, 2021. Um, we're sort of now sort of at phase three of what will probably be five phases of bringing all of those holiday lets up to standard. So they've all, you know, at the moment, we've got a suite that are being refurbished as we speak. When the head gardener's house opens at all the end, that will be sort of kitted out with, uh, the, I mean, the kitchen is beautiful, um, but so is the interior. And it's not just a case of, well, actually, if we just thrown a load of stuff in there, we work really closely with the uh, business that won the tender for the, the refurbishment. So we're working um, with John Lewis on that property um, and we work with their interior designers. And we're trying to create, and I'm, I know we'll touch on it later, but we're trying to create these experiences where actually, if you really enjoy being in one of our holiday cottages, you can go away and you can buy pretty much anything you see inside. And as much as is possible as the as the licensing program evolves, those products will be English heritage products. So, you know, you'll be sat below a wallpaper that's inspired by a clipping from a collections archive down the road that actually was in a building on. Uh, so we have like this incredible piece of wallpaper from um, Great Ormond Street. So the same road as the, the famous hospital that's used on product and you'll be able to go and buy that but you also might be able to buy it on a cushion or on home furnishings or on a bedspread um but you get to experience the quality of it first and then you've really got this sort of continued storytelling like guests don't just leave because they've checked out they kind of take a little bit of us with them which is the aspiration and um i think it's like the premier Inn did this years ago they had this whole campaign where you could buy the hypnos bed that you slept on in a premier inn and it was kind of they were one of the first brands to sort of say well, we are as a Premier Inn, right? But if you had a great night's sleep, have this great night's sleep at home because you can buy the same bed that we have. So, yeah, it's just kind of trying to perfect that wheel, if you like. You described it as experiential shopping, which yeah. I think is is a great, great term. And I just I love how many I love how many facets are woven into this in that you how are well, you're celebrating artefacts artwork craft that has come from you know all these incredible places and you're allowing people to now stay in a beautiful holiday cottage purchase part of that experience to take home with them if that's not diversifying in countries I don't know I don't know what describes it any better to be honest yeah (laughs) and I mean you know as as a charity we're on this incredible mission to be financially self-sufficient so you know we are an independent charity uh, from 2015 so and then um, this financial year is the last year that we receive sort of government tapering relief. 
So we're really out, you know, out there to become much loved, to connect with our members, our visitors um, and our audience. And what better way to do that than not only offer them a great day out, because that's like a core part of what we do, you know, offer them a great day out that really tells the story of England, offer them this opportunity for a great stay out that tells the story of England and then an opportunity to sort of take a piece of that experience home with them or to go and shop for that experience because we'll never be able to put a three-piece sofa or a kitchen, you know, in one of our, our retail spaces, their gift shops, their, their exit through the gift shops. They're incredibly um, well run by my colleagues in our retail team. Um, so how do we, how can we do that? How can we showcase those other products? Well, through our holiday lets, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's brilliant. Uh, let's, can, if I can ask you a little bit about partnerships, I just think that this is so relevant to this part of the conversation, but you know, what, what I'd love to understand is how, you define what a good partnership looks like. Like, how do you choose the products and how do you choose the organisations that you do partners with? Yeah, I guess the first thing to say is, and I can touch specifically on products because we have a real robust roadmap for how we choose who we're going to work with when it comes to sort of licensees and partners to, to create product with in that aspect. But broader than that, sort of partnerships for us touch on, especially for me, on all of our business areas. So, you know, we've just closed um, a 30-night Christmas light trail at Kenwood in Northwest London, which we run in partnership with uh, Kilimanjaro Live, uh, Christmas at Kenwood. And we are hosting, again, uh, Gardener's World Autumn Fair um, at the end in Essex. That will be there for the second year this year. And we run that in partnership with the team behind Autumn Fair. I guess I'd some, I, I bring those up because it really uh, symbolizes what partnership, how partnerships work best for us, which is that there's an equal contribution where both, both parties are adding value. Um, it could be really, really easy to mistake working with a charity or working with an attraction as potentially very one-sided. You know, we need, they have, um, or they have and we need, but actually it's not. We've got this real opportunity to, grow combined audiences, add combined and shared value, um, and celebrate sort of everything that stands true in both uh, camps, you know, from a value perspective. With products, you know, it's a slightly more robust roadmap because we are manufacturing something, we're creating something that's going to carry our our trademark, our logo. So we have five core uh, values that I apply to our licensing business. So we look for uh, products of of quality. Uh, we look for qu- products which carry, um, you know, hallmarks of authenticity. Are they telling a story accurately? Because we are the storytellers of England. It has to be right. You know, are they responsibly sourced? Is the organisation a responsible organisation? Um, is it fun? Because ultimately fun is one of our core values. And, you know, it can sound really cheesy when you say one of our corporate values is fun with a capital F. But no, we are fun. You know, we're ultimately a day out for lots of people for nearly sort of pre-pandemic 10 million visitors a year um, and our 1.2 million members. And then with products, we look at sort of, is is there something imaginative here? You know, are we doing something different? Are we going to tell a really cool story of England in a way that people might not expect or is... English heritage as a brand going to appear somewhere that you might not expect, but are sort of surprised and delighted by. And you could, I guess, you know, engineer those values back over all the other partnerships that we have as well, because actually they're all of quality. You know, they're all authentic. 
you know, everyone that we work with um, is respectful and responsible. And lots of the, the stuff that we do, especially the events, are really fun and imaginative. So, yeah, I'm going to go away and add that into my own strategy now. <laughs> oh, well, well, I'm glad that you've been inspired by this conversation. <laughs> um, what I really liked about that is that you, um, the way that you describe the products is that they are, they're very unique to, to your values and very unique to your organisations. And that's what people are looking for, isn't it? You know, they don't just want another cushion with something on it. They don't just want another thing that they can buy. They want something that they can only get when they visit your organisation. They can only get it if they go to Audley End. They can only get it if they go to it wherever else they go to. You know, that's what's really important to people at the moment, that uniqueness. Completely. And I think one of the, the cool things about our brand licensing program is that we are loosely making products, you know, we make the products available on site as much as we can and and off site with retail partners. But you'd never normally expect to walk into. So I walked into Sainsbury's. So I used to, my very first ever job um, when I was like 18. I was on my I took a gap year. Um, and my, I guess a big regret, I should have just gone traveling and seen the world, right? But instead, I was like, no, I'm going to work, I'm going to save, I'm going to go to university, I'm going to be really responsible. So um, my first ever job was in Sainsbury's, and I went back to that Sainsbury's store, um, it's in Barnwood in Gloucester, and I walked into the beers, wines, and spirits aisle, uh, shock, um, people are going to get a real perception of me here, <laughs> but, um, and they're hanging there on a clip strip, I mean, I knew they were going to be there. There hanging there was this uh, chip shop scraps and fries, uh, a crisp product that we made with our partner made for drink. So, you know, here I am sort of 12 years on stood, you know, the this, this shop still feels the same. You still recognize some of the colleagues stood in the beers, wines and spirits are looking at this product that is made in partners, you know, crafted in partnership with made for drink. They're carbon neutral when they're produced. They're in recyclable packaging. And they celebrate sort of flavours and stories of England through food. And it's an English heritage product in a Sainsbury's. You know, it's kind of, it's not necessarily the type of product that people might expect to see our brand on. But actually, when they learn about the story and then they learn about the partner that we've partnered with, they're surprised and delighted. And I always like to share, we had several different reach outs from prospective partners to create snacking products um, crisps, et cetera, et cetera. And we chose to go with Dan at Made for Drink because, you know, they best matched all of those values I spoke about, sort of quality, authenticity, um, respect, imagination, and fun, rather than perhaps maybe a global snack manufacturer that yes, we could have made tens of thousands of packs, but it would have been a, it would have been just our logo on just another bag. You know, there wouldn't have been the depth of storytelling. And then when you look back to us being that sort of, Museum of England with our sort of ambition of telling England's story, you, you you kind of have to really stay true to those values to create a quality product and to create lasting partnerships and relationships. We don't want to feel like we have something, our logo. They want it, great, have it. And then what, what do we get beyond that? Very little. Whereas with the partnership with Made for Drink, there's been lots of innovation. We're getting to work with lots of um, domestic food producers and flavour houses so, yeah, it's really exciting and it really kind of embodies everything that partnerships should for a, an attraction or a cultural organisation. A great story as well. Did you feel secretly pleased when you were stood in that same spirit that you didn't go on that gap year and that you did save up and go to university to do all these wonderful things? Yeah, I felt a bit smug um, <laughs> because I was like, I was like, you know, from the shop floor to the shelf, you know, uh, this guy. Um, so I had a little moment in the beers and I took a little selfie and, and, and did that thing that everyone does and post it on LinkedIn 
um sort of with all of the sort of faux pas of the average linkedin post ending on a rhetorical question um but yeah so it was a little moment of uh a little moment of joy as i took it and i went through the self-scan checkout and bought it and i was like yeah here we go and i've got the receipt somewhere you know it's nostalgic <laughs> so but you know it was fun that's brilliant and well deserved as well congratulations it's a great 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 story okay let's um what I'd love to do we talked a little bit about how a lot of the strategies that you've worked through are they're not just for huge organizations there are things that that any size attraction can do how can they utilize these strategies and is there any way that you could summarize kind of like a top three tips for us yeah, so um, I have like a real. I'm I'm really a staunch believer in the working a working methodology. Like no do and review. Um, so that'd be my like first tip, right? Like know what you can't do it goes all the way back to sort of our first part of the conversation. Like know what you can't do, know what you can do. So take the time to look at you know take stock, understand what you have, what you don't have, what you might need to be successful. Then get on and do it because, you know, we're, we're probably all, I'd say all managers at some point have definitely written or all leaders have definitely written a strategy that they've then done absolutely nothing with other than PDF it and shove it in a OneDrive or a folder somewhere. So get on with the doing, um, which is so important, you know, and that means rolling up sleeves. You can't, you can't be a bedroom leader. You have to get out, um, get out on the ground, stand there and really understand if, you know, did I know everything or do I need to know more? You know, so you're constantly learning through the do process and then review, right? Like stop and wrap it up or think about it, perfect it, tweak it. Don't let it just roll downhill out of control. Um, and equally, don't hold it at the top, sort of afraid to let go. Um, but yeah, so no do and review would be my first tip. Um, my second tip, especially for smaller organizations. So the institution um, I worked in prior to uh, English Heritage. So I worked for the University of Oxford in two different museums, one very big museum and one very small museum. My second tip um, really comes from there, which is one meeting, one topic, one focus. You know, when you're in a smaller institution, stakeholders often have really wide reaching job remits and they're covering operations, commercial, planning, health and safety, finance, you know, you could be talking to the same person for all of those things. So don't sit down with that person and have a million different conversations, you know, really focus your time and energy on one one meeting, one topic, one focus. Um, and I still use that to this day. I, I'm a real believer in like, let's just talk about just this. And then let's have a separate meeting to talk about something else. Um, and then my final uh, tip would be like the power of no. Um, I sound like I'm about to release three books, don't I? Like, first book, <laughs> No Do Review with Kingston. Um, second book, One Meeting, One Topic. And I would read book. these books. I would read these books. I would buy these books and read them. <laughs> I'll brand license them and I'll put them in the holiday cottages. Um, but yeah, the power of no, right? Like, it's okay to say no to things. Like, if in the no process, you know, when you're when you're doing all the research and all the groundwork, it's just does it does it not feel right do the numbers not stack up like we have it's human instinct and we've almost been programmed out of that like there's and there's lots of different analogies people run down and different avenues you know is it because actually we've got this hustle culture and we have to give everything a go um no you don't you don't have to give everything a go if your expertise and skills and knowledge are telling you this is not going to work then just say no and that's sometimes a really difficult decision and I've had lots of conversations with people recently they're like I really want to do this but and I'm like well if that but list is factual and it's going to create a, a great amount of risk then don't do it 
Um, so yeah, the power of no would be my my third top tip. That is a great top tip for life in general, I think, at Kingston. Um, weirdly, so every year I kind of set a word that I try to use as a guide for my year. And this year's is reflect because I'm I'm a bit of a people pleaser. So I say yes to many things and then run out of time and then end up not, not being able to do those things or just do them as badly or I do them to a to a level of degree that I that I could do better so learning to say no I think is the most powerful tip that you've shared in that process (laughs) and I'm going to remember that and I've used it you know and I'm I'm proud of the fact that I've said no we've said no to potential partnerships we've said no to potential events uh we've said no to certain activity types at certain types because when we take stock of everything we're trying to do, there's already so much we say yes to that actually it's okay to say no because we can do really well over here. You know, the sort of the middle area, you, you know, sometimes the entrepreneurial spirit in you pushes the yes through. Um, but a lot of time that sort of hold up, wait a minute, um, actually no. Um, it is so important and it saved us from going down. It's in so many of my job roles, it saved me from going down like the rabbit hole of sort of, you convince yourself that then you have to put all your energy and time into something. And actually it doesn't yield the result that that time could have yielded if you'd have focused somewhere else. Yeah. It's really, really important advice that everybody should listen to. Thank you. Brilliant tips. Thank you for sharing. Uh, You just touched on something there that I'd like to to talk about because you talked about entrepreneurial spirit. And I think there always is that element of wanting to do more and wanting to get stuck into doing the excited things. We talked a little bit about sector support at the beginning, and you did mention that this role is is quite, it's, it's relatively unique. Where do you go to find your kind of support network for the for the role that you have? So I'm really lucky in that I'm a trustee for the uh, Association of Cultural Enterprises. So I sit on their board of trustees. I'm also a director of the trading company that we have. And the best way to summarize the association is that it's all about advancing commerce and in like business innovation in the cultural sector. So I appreciate that for sort of the wider attraction sector, sort of culture and heritage is a is a swim lane sort of in the pool that is attractions. But that's incredible because all of the organizations that are members and nearly 400 cultural organizations are members sort of across the, the country all of those organizations have got an appetite to do more. So you end up finding that actually this commercial manager in this really small museum somewhere has got this really incredible idea and we can help them with that, or I can help them with that, or one of my fellow trustees can help them with that. Or this massive organization wants to turn to a small organization because they've seen something, you know, incredible. And I always think back to, you know, and I reference like the marketing of this, um, but there was... um, this, this like the, the, the Museum of English Rural Life uh, had this like incredible Twitter explosion with with some of their content. Um, and suddenly everyone turned to them on sort of how do you go viral? How has Merle gone viral? Mm-hmm. How can we go viral? And I guess the association is like a, a, is the best place to go and find the person likely to be behind something commercially innovative. You know, if you want to see something incredible that's happened at English Heritage, um, I mean, I'll shamelessly promote myself, but I'm probably likely to be able to point you in the direction of the commercial leader responsible for that. And everyone's really up for networking there. It's it's kind of the backbone of how it works is that willingness to share and support one another. And I think the culture and heritage sector within the attraction space is really good at that because we're quite comfortable with 
you know, the fact that there's enough success there for everyone. I appreciate that when you've got a competitor potentially down the road um, and you're a purely commercial attraction, that's a little bit of a difficult conversation to have in the first instance. But actually, it opens up doors um, and access to resources and also access to people's mistakes, right? Like, what have people said no to or would they have said no to now that you can learn from and say no to yourself? Yeah, again, brilliant, brilliant advice. And it's so good that there are organisations out there that offer this level of support. And what we'll do is everything that we've talked about today, we'll pop links to in the show notes. So you can access information about English heritage, you can see some of the products, and we'll pop the link to the ACE organisation as well. Um, And if that is useful to any of our listeners, you'll know where to go and find it. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing Kingston. This has been a brilliant chat. I'm so grateful for you, um, for your time and for your insight into this. Um, we always like to ask our guests to share a book that they love at the end of the podcast. So what have you prepared for us today? Yeah, so um, I'm wax lyrical about this book. It's called First Break All the Rules. Um, it's a Gallup, Gallup study of like what successful managers do differently. So First Break All the Rules is probably one of the most powerful leadership books I've read for a couple of reasons. One, it's backed by this phenomenal global study of businesses, their leaders, their people, their results. So, you know, there are some great books out there, but they're theoretical. They're someone's opinion. This book is, you know, etched in statistical facts. So I quite like that. That that pleases the the inner nerd in me. Um, and se- secondly, it really does force you to think differently about, you know, especially if you're a, a leader of leaders or a leader of a team really forces you to think slightly differently about um, how you can get the best out of your best people, how you can recruit for the best people. Um, And it's, you know, at first read, it can read quite controversially because, you know, what's called first break all the rules. So you would expect it, but it can read quite controversially. It will force you to really think about um, do do leaders play favorites, you know, is a really great chapter in that book. And, the difference between skills, knowledge and talent and coming to terms with the fact that you can teach people skills and knowledge, but their talent, their behaviours, you can do your best to bring out what somebody has, but you can never add to that in the book. So um, I would definitely recommend, um, especially leaders of teams um, and leaders of leaders to read that book or listen to it. Great book choice. So that has not come up on the podcast in what, 60 odd episodes. So that is a really good one to go on the list. And uh, as ever, listeners, if you head over to our Twitter account and you retweet this episode announcement with the words, I want Kingston's book, you'll be in with a chance of winning a copy as well. Amazing. Thank you so much again for coming on. It's been a really interesting chat. I am sure that at some point we'll get to meet each other at Audley End maybe as well at the, one of the next events that you that you're running there. 100%. We'll get we'll, we'll, we should do a we should do like an ad hoc episode live from <gasps> Audley End. Oh, I love <laughs> that. On my doorstep. Okay, let's talk about how we can make that happen. Excellent. Thanks again. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Skip the Queue. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find us. And remember to follow us on Twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned. Skip the Queue is brought to you by Rubber Cheese, a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.